So like the sixth and the seventh commandment last week, both of this week's commandments prohibit actions that do things to us as human beings, disfiguring us and keeping us from God. The, the commandments prohibit the actions of stealing and of giving false testimony. And those things hurt the person that's doing them. They also hurt the victim by taking something from them. And they hurt the wider community and society, right? And so that's the three things that we can look at with all the commandments. That when we infringe upon them, we hurt ourselves. We hurt those who we hurt by breaking the commandments, the victims. And then we hurt the wider community as well. We see that God gives these commandments to his people and indeed to all humanity in order to reveal his will to them. And so with the eighth commandment is no exception. The eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal or you shall not steal. And I hope what you're seeing as we've gone through these commandments is while they seem very basic, they're not at all, right? The first thing that, that thou shalt not steal reveals is that God does not will for human beings to live in a society where everything's owned in common. Communism is ruled out, outright, right? God doesn't believe in that because it's not what he created us for. The rest of the Levitical law makes it clear that God is, in fact, a great proponent of property, a great proponent of ownership. And God recognizes that property is tied to his provision and it's tied to him because ultimately he is the owner of all things. As Proverbs chapter 13, verse four says, the soul of the sluggard, I love that word, by the way, in the Proverbs, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. St. Paul puts it even more succinctly in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone, will, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. The end of Exodus in chapters 21 and 22 are all about different kinds of property restitution. And you can read through those laws at your own time, but I just want to raise one example taken from Exodus 22 verse 5. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and in his own vineyard. Whether you see it's the man's negligence that causes damage to the other man's field or vineyard or whether he outright steals it, the fact is that theft has happened and it's not his, and he needs to make it right. So you find this all over, more examples in Leviticus chapter six, chapters 19 and Deuteronomy 24. Why does God care so much about property? Why does God care so much about property? We might ask ourselves why it makes the 10 commandments. Well, because it's part of what God created human beings to do ultimately. Property is part of what God created us to have, ultimately. 
It's part of our being made in his image. Recall Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Let them have dominion. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 We read, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work and to have dominion is to have ownership. And with that ownership, there's great responsibility and fulfillment. We don't often think of work this way, but it's true that it is a gift to be able to work. You don't have that ability by yourself. We talked a few weeks ago about the fact that you and I don't have the ability to even live by ourselves, right? And so both life and the ability to have industry or to work is a gift from God. And perhaps you never thought about it, but working hard is actually being godly. Now, it's true that sin has has tainted our work by bringing toil along with it, right? Sometimes work is very tiresome. In fact, Most of the time, work is very tiresome. But we shouldn't let that block out the fact that it's a gift of God. Even when we don't own property or things, we still own our own work and we still own our own labor. Right? So it is that St. Paul writes to bondservants, people that own nothing, in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. St. Paul is not being super spiritual there. He's just saying that our work in this world is attached to the Lord's reward. Right? There's a connection. There's not a disconnect between our work life and our church life, between our Christian life and between our life outside the walls of this church or our congregation. And so think about that, because I think in some ways it's revolutionary to think about it. Did you ever think about the fact that upkeeping your house, mowing your yard, painting your garage, doing those things is virtuous? Doing those things is godly? Doing those things is participating in the kingdom of God? I know I don't think about that very often, although I, I do enjoy doing those things. So maybe there's something to that. In fact, Scripture says that it is. And so is getting up and going to work to provide for your family or your children or anybody else who's dependent upon you in your household. That's a gift friends. And doing that well is godly. Investing your sweat and your labor into a piece of property, into your work, for the sake of your kin, for the sake of those dependent upon you, no matter what your work is, is godly. Being a priest is not more godly than being a garbage collector. If it's done to the glory of God, Conversely, one can choose poorly. One can be possessed by his or her possessions. One can be beholden to them. One can be enslaved by his or her lifestyle. And we see a whole lot of that here today. 
not in you particularly, but in our culture, and maybe in you particularly. That's part of what this sermon's designed to ask you about. Our catechism says, I, as I am able, I should earn my own living, care for my dependents, and give to the poor. I should use all my possessions to the glory of God and the good of creation. Let me ask you, who is it that owns all things ultimately? God, right? So stealing is a form of instant gratification. Stealing or thievery doesn't actually gratify, if you think about it. It has a quick, a quick gratification, but there's a secret that we know as followers of God, and I think some people in the world know too, and that's that there is satisf- satisfaction in doing hard work. There's satisfaction of enjoying the fruit of your labor because God's given you the ability to do it. Now think about that. A bonus or raise is nice, right? A bonus or raise is nice, but how much better is it when your boss says to you, I'm giving you this bonus or this raise because you really performed in the last quarter. Think about that. The money is nice by itself, but how much better is it with recognition? A certification or a degree is a good thing, right? But when you come about it honestly, it's much better. Would it make any difference if someone gave you a diploma with a degree and you knew that you hadn't earned it, that you cheated your way through, you might have that degree on your wall, but you're not a possessor of it. We know this because we know that wealth itself doesn't make people happy. Think of all the famous and rich people who are utterly miserable. Now you might think to yourself, wow, I'd like to be miserable like that person. But don't be tricked. Wealth is not happiness. Wealth is not happiness. Stealing short circuits God's system. But worse than that, stealing imitates what the devil does in the garden and still does today. Remember, Lucifer, the devil, wanted to steal God's worship and his glory. His presence as the serpent in the garden was to steal Adam and Eve's dominion through deceit. And of course he did until Christ came to restore it. Stealing is worse, therefore, than indolence or laziness. Stealing is worse than negligence or indifference, for it doubles up on sin. It's not merely doing your duty to provide for yourself and others, but it's doing what you ought to do and take, not doing, rather, what you ought to do and taking it from others who deserve it, right? And so it breaks the law of justice, It breaks the law of justice. The New Testament confirms this teaching again and again. Jesus contrasts himself, after all, with a thief in John 10, right? You know the passage. Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd. And he says, I am the good shepherd. The thief comes in the night to kill and destroy. St. Paul lists thieves with the greedy, with many who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. In 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6, verse 10, 
Not only does stealing damage the thief's soul by imitating the devil, it speaks as an utter utter lack of trust in God's provision. When someone steals, it's saying, God, you don't care for me. You're not going to provide for me. It hurts other people, too. It hurts the victim, even if the victim, quote unquote, can afford it. It undermines society where work and dominion are tied to ownership. As Christians, we're not to steal, nor are we to partner with those who steal or advocate stealing for any reason. Now you may be saying, well, I'm not a thief. But stealing can be hard to detect in our lives. For example, did you know you can steal wages? And I think at some point, most of us are guilty of this. By not reporting your hours honestly, by not giving good work to your employer, you're stealing. Identity, by assuming someone else's identity. We hear a lot about identity theft today, right? There's all sorts of commercials that talk about it. But there's lots of ways that we can steal someone's identity in more than legal ways, right? Or credit, either financial credit or taking credit for someone else's work. That's stealing. We can steal intellectual property. Violations of patents and copyrights are examples of that. Knowingly taking someone else's work or innovation and passing it on as your own is an example of that. Cheating at school is an example of that. Plagiarism is an example of that. It's copying someone else's hard work or not citing someone else's hard work and passing it off as your own. That's stealing. Not paying your debt is stealing. Boy, that's a complicated uh, thing today, isn't it? Because our society runs on debt to some degree. But not paying one's debt is stealing, or at least intending to pay one's debt, if we can't. When we use someone else's money lent to us under terms that we agreed to and do not repay them, that's a violation of this commandment. Psalm 37, verse 21, we read, The ungodly, ungodly borrow and do not repay, but the righteous are merciful and generous. Cheating on your taxes, not reporting your information correctly to the government, or giving outright false reports of your income, that's stealing, too. It's hurting your common society, the commonwealth of who we are as a people. Not giving generously to God, that is stealing. That is stealing, too. People steal from God, and some of us have been guilty of that as well. In question 338, our catechism states, a tithe, which is 10% of my income, is the minimum standard that I'm supposed to give to God and his church to spread his kingdom. And yet I should give generously to God of what he has entrusted to me. You see, when you frame it as the fact that God owns all things, and he's entrusted you with some things, and he asks for 10% back, 
He's not asking for very much. He's only asking that you contribute that back to him, that which is his. When we collect the offering plate, what do we say as we present it before the altar? All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thy own have we given thee. Quoting scripture. The catechism cites Malachi 6. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, or lack thereof, is the implication. Jesus seems to endorse that Old Testament rule of the tithe. And so we dare not steal from God by not giving a tithe to him. As a church, the ACNA has said that the tithe is the minimum standard that we should give to the local church. And the local church should give to the diocese. And the diocese should give to the wider province for the good and advancement of the kingdom of God. Friends, we can disagree on whether tithing is still a mandate, biblically speaking. But we've agreed to it as a church. God cares about our property and our money and stealing so much because he cares about our well-being as human beings. He wants us to remember who is the source of all things. Who gave us our ability to work? Who gives us the ability to be part of his kingdom itself? Without his grace, we have nothing. The opposite of stealing, therefore, is not abstaining from stealing, but generosity. The the opposite of stealing is being generous with what the Lord has given you. Blessing others with what he's blessed you with. Now, what one of us can raise our hand and say, the Lord has not blessed me? None of us can say that. What one of us can raise our hand and say, I don't have all that I need in this world right now? Oh, you might lack things that you want. I do, certainly. But what's the bar here? The Lord provides for us so that we might be generous and provide for others. And so while the Lord upholds the importance and integrity of property and labor, so it's coupled with generosity, with a generous spirit. We're to use what he's given us with other things. We as Americans like to assert our rights. We don't like to assert our duties. And just as we have rights in this country, given by God, so we have duties to each other. Let's look at the eighth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The original prohibition for this commandment was against committing perjury. Does everybody know what perjury is? What is it? It's lying in trial. It's lying in front of a judge. It's lying in front of a court. Under oath, oath, in fact. Yes. Yeah. In this country. It's probably changed over the years. But in this country... In fact, Stuart Douglas points out in his commentary on the original Hebrew that this uh, commandment can be translated, you must not speak against your neighbor by way of false testimony, which is a little bit different. That might help you. You must not speak against your neighbor by false testimony. Bringing charges against someone is a serious thing. This starts with accusations, right? We're not to accuse people haphazardly. 
even if someone's not found out, or even if someone rather is found not guilty and the accused never gets his reputation or her reputation back and walks around under suspicion the rest of their life. It's a form of theft. That's right. That's why these are connected. It's also particularly hurtful to culture and the Hebrew culture where the building block was not the individual, but was the family, was the tribe. You see, bearing false witness brought all kinds of distress and destruction and harm in that time. It still does, but it's just a little bit better hidden now, right? And so later on in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, we see that the testimony of two or three witnesses are necessary to convict a man on a capital offense. Because God values truth, God values justice, and God values life itself. Because God is those things, you see. The true, the just, the good, the beautiful. Accusations should not be made flippantly or collaborated with false information. Nor should one confirm a charge against somebody with false or partial information. But another passage in Leviticus expands on this commandment to cover the omission of information too. It's found in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1, where we read, If anyone sins because they do not speak up when they hear a public charge to testify regarding something they have seen or learned about, they will be held responsible. Do you see there's sins of omission? Injustice as well. That it's our job to speak up when we see something unjust. It's our job to speak up if we see someone being hurt by an untruth. God desires human beings to be just and truthful because that's linked to our well-being. And God knows us well. He made us. Things don't change so often. It's true. We might be in a cosmopolitan society now instead of a desert nomadic one, but human beings are still the same. We say things that are untrue. We color the facts to our own advantage. We misrepresent. We speak or we remain silent out of spite. Our sin infects our notions of truth and justice. But this commandment is not merely prohibiting giving false testimony in courts or trials. No, it goes beyond that. It prohibits deception lying, partial truth, and other parts of life because these things do violence to us, to our neighbors, and to our society. A person putting forth false information, a person receiving false information, and it perverts the truth and justice of a stable society. I mean, think about it. What happens to a person who starts lying or deceiving in small things? I was explaining to my daughter, Bridget, the other day, the story of the boy who cried wolf, right? Illustrates this well in one of our fables. The person who starts in lying or deceiving or crying wolf, they grow in it. It becomes part of who they are. They start to manipulate. They become a worker of falsehood. Often they get away with it. And so in that short reward, they try again and again and again until they're a habitual liar or deceiver. Just like the last commandment, 
the habitual liar and deceiver begins to not look like God, but to look like who? who? The devil, the adversary, the father of lies, Scripture calls him. And what about the person who receives that false information, that person that is deceived? You might think, oh, it's just a small lie, but the person might act on that false information. Or they might do an injustice to someone else because of what you said to them. Or they might believe something that's untrue, that hurts them for the rest of their lives. Unfortunately, friends, we see that happening all over our society today. Untruths are spread. People are hurt. People are warped. Or people that know the truth remain silent. And that, too, hurts them and their neighbors and their society. Becomes more like what the devil does and what the devil wants, our destruction. What else breaks the Eighth Commandment? Well, any misrepresentation. If you've ever presented partial information to manipulate or deceive others, you've broken this commandment. If you've ever slandered or gossiped at work, around your dinner table with your family, you've broken this commandment. You've passed along untruths or clothed truth with untruth or given partial truth. You've become susceptible to innuendo, attacking someone behind his back rather than confronting him in love. If you've ever taught something or silently agreed with something that's a falsehood, You've broken this commandment. On one hand, people might teach something that's false outright, but it's another thing to support a falsehood or not to throw up your hand and say, wait a minute, that's not how it is. So being a, so being a witness to Christ and to the kingdom of God is keeping this commandment. It's being an advocate for truth and for the one who is the way the truth, and the life. Our catechism says that when we lie or misrepresent, it defames and wounds my neighbor, erodes my love of the truth, disobeys my Lord Jesus, and aligns me with Satan, the father of lies. And so, friends, don't do it. (laughs) What's the opposite of lying? Being a witness For the truth. Being a witness for the truth. You know, that takes courage. It takes boldness. It takes understanding and wisdom and steadfastness. But ultimately, it comes down to being willing to take the side of what is true and right. We see God condemn thievery in our first lesson today, don't we? It's a pretty brutal lesson in Joshua. There's a thief who covets Achan, right? who steals, who hides under the tent. And God cares so much about thievery that Joshua starts losing battles. Joshua starts, the bodies start adding up until the thief is uncovered. Thievery is something deserving of death, according to scripture, just like all of the Ten Commandments. But, We don't end there. For who is it, as we enter into Holy Week, who sits 
or is hung rather, at the side of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross? Do you think it's a mistake that it's a thief? Who is it that Jesus turns to and says, today you will be with me in paradise? It's the thief. To see, the thief deserves death. As we said last week, all of us deserve death. But for the grace of God. But for the grace of repentance. But for God turning to us and say, saying, will you follow me instead of the way of death? And so, dear friends, choose life. Follow the way of life. Follow the way of integrity. Follow the way of godliness. And when you fall, as indeed you do, repent. Don't try to justify it. Repent and come back to the way of life. Amen.